Hey, Tina here, just to let you all know that I am an absolute fool. Before we started recording this episode, I forgot to go through my pre-flight checklist and make sure that my microphone input was switched to the correct microphone. So you may hear some scritchy scratchy noises throughout this episode, and that is just the microphone on my headphones getting friendly with my scarf. But I think we have some great content for you guys, so thanks for staying tuned. Welcome to Opera Plot Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real live opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a lady with the mouth of a moderately well-bred sailor who just wants to fit in with the rest of the crew, about the plot of an opera, and then we ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no clue what opera we're going to talk about. But I do know who the composer is, and I'm pretty sure at this point we should probably just consider renaming this podcast I Heart Verdi Plot Happy Hour because we have done enough. Not enough. There's never enough Verdi. But I'm not going to tell you about Verdi tonight. (laughs) If you want to know more about Verdi outside of what we talk about in the course of this episode, you can definitely tune in to episode 7, in which we talk about Hernani, and also episode 21, Rigoletto. So the reason we're talking about Verdi again tonight is because we had a special request. Yes, we did. From this week's sponsors. Yes, we did. I think it would be awesome to talk about how we came to be involved with this week's sponsors. And they are Jay Carver Distillery out in Waconia, Minnesota. They are indeed. And I love this story because it is it was just so crazy and serendipitous how this all happened. Um, so when one has a podcast in which one drinks and when one does not want to not feature... I mean, first of all, we have always had the goal of trying to feature local businesses whenever possible in this podcast. And then we were like, hey, we drink every week. Let's see if we can get some people to pay for that for us. <laughs> Um, so I periodically will just kind of blast an email out to any distillery or brewery or winery or what have you that is in the area that might be interested. And sometimes I get a response and sometimes I do not. And that is understandable. And the time that I sent one to Jake Harver, I got a response very quickly and it was from Bill. I think that, I think what he said, essentially I, I end my lengthy data-filled email by saying, anyways, would you like to sponsor our podcast? Please let us know. And he wrote back a single line of text and he said, maybe, if you'll do Nabucco. And I had never heard of Nabucco. And so I kind of at first was like, (laughs) was that a typo? (laughs) But I did a quick Google search as one does. And turns out it's an opera by Verdi. And then I was really intrigued. I said, do you, are you an opera fan? And he said, well, my mom was an opera singer and I grew up really close to, was it in New York, the opera, the opera house he grew yeah, up Yeah, the New York City Opera Company. Yeah. 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 So he's been, uh, l- shall we say, raised in the genre a bit and has been just lovely to talk to via email while we were coordinating this. Also his, um, one of his major partners, Gina, just a delight. These folks are just the nicest people. And if you get a chance to offer patronage <laughs> to this distillery, you really should. These people are excellent humans and they make a dang good Akavit. And a dang good rye. That's awesome. But I have to, before we get to talking about that, I just have to add to your story about, about Bill and his connection to the opera world because his son, I believe, went to Indiana University which is one of the big opera schools here in the United States. The incomparable Carol Van Ness teaches there. She's one of like the last great golden age singers. She's amazing. I drool when I listen to her sing. But anyway, um, so like if you go to Indiana University, you are pretty serious about opera. <laughs> oh 
my God. I didn't know that. Yeah. And they also have a second home in Santa Fe and can go to the Santa Fe Summer Opera Festival there every year, which is also incredible. Like, these people are opera fans. It's yeah, just, I know. <laughs> it's amazing that of all the places you reached out to, you stumbled on the opera fans. Of all the distilleries in all the world. I know. <laughs> so crazy. So thank you, Jay Carver Distillery, for sponsoring this episode. We're stoked. And also, this is our first episode not during dry January again. So we're very excited to have cocktails <laughs> for two reasons. So uh, can we talk about the cocktails we're drinking or do you want to do that later? Oh, absolutely. Let's talk about them. Okay. So I am always on the hunt for a good Akavit. I spent four months in Norway in college and that's, it's, it's a Scandinavian liquor. It's basically like gin for Scandinavians, right? And it's got a very distinctive flavor and it's delicious. And I have a, a, a sob story about the time I tried to take duty-free liquor home as a, as a Christmas gift from a Norway and it was confiscated uh, because I didn't understand customs. Anyways, <laughs> I was young. I was stupid. Um, so I've never, not never, it took a really long time before I was able to figure out which distilleries in Minnesota are making a good Akavit. And I got to say, this is one of them. This is absolutely up there in like my top three Akavits that I've had stateside. Um, and the cocktail that I made is one that they recommended. Uh, and I can't remember what it's called, but it is two ounces of their Akavit, a quarter ounce of their absinthe. And when Gina was like, oh, would you like to try this one with absinthe? I was like, fuck yes, I'd like to try this one with absinthe. Um, and then it's got like uh, an ounce of simple and an ounce of lime juice. I have never had Akavit with lime. It is delicious. And you just shake it and, and pour it in the glass. And it's it's really rocking my world. It's awesome. We have to like trade bottles because I, I want to try that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. How's your how's your rye whiskey over there? So good. As we all know, I am a big fan of the rye and the whiskey and just like the very uh, spirit forward cocktail. And this definitely delivers. So I'm drinking their Runestone Straight Rye, which is named for the famous Kensington, Minnesota Runestone, which whoop, whoop. which turned out to be a huge crock but it's really fun anyways <laughs> um and it's they say it is created for whiskey aficionados and hardcore rye lovers and i can confirm this is true and it is aged over four years in charred oak barrels coopered in minnesota and this is something that i absolutely love about them because as much stuff as they can source from Minnesota, they do. Down to the people who cooper their barrels. Yeah. It is so local. And I, I just, I love it because not only do I love their product, I love the story behind it. I love the people behind it. It's just, you know, as a millennial, I like uh, products that I can believe in. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> so I'm actually drinking uh, Manhattan, which is one of my faves, made with the runestone rye and their Amaro, which I had never heard of Amaro before. Yeah, it's, me neither. Yeah, so this is their Corella Amaro. It's an Italian-style herbal liquor, which is typically enjoyed as an after-dinner digestif. Oh. And also Amaro is the last name of the best man in our wedding, so you know it's got to be good. <laughs> and the Amaro is actually great on its own, and it is now my favorite extra kick in Manhattan's because it oh, adds cool. good flavor without adding sweetness. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And let me tell you, Gina gave us, like, everything that we needed for these cocktails. Like, I she know. even bottled up vermouth for me, and she put in a bunch of sour cherries and, like, the bamboo skewers for Dang, the cherries. You have like, a fancy ass drink over there i got limes and i'm delighted that i got limes you got absinthe so i did get absinthe i'm pretty stoked about the absinthe but I, so we actually sent my husband to pick these up for us because he had some business in waconia anyways and they were so nice they gave him an entire tour of the, fa the facility like showed him everything and he was really impressed and I just I want to go back I'm so excited for when they open because they also have brandy and I as a Wisconsin girl am a huge fan of brandy I would love to try their brandy yeah yeah um, it's so hard to find distilleries like micro distilleries that do brandy well and not yes that but also like this is their absinthe this mm -hmm. is their aquavit like they've got they've got a freaking roster 
of yeah. liquors and and the like that they're doing in-house. And like you said, they're sourcing almost everything. I mean, I can't speak to a percentage, but they really work at sourcing their grain and their uh, the Coopers. Like, everything's here in Minnesota. And I know we have listeners not in Minnesota, but everybody can get behind you know, supporting local businesses, especially during this weird ass time for local businesses. Oh, yeah. I was actually telling my dad about this rye because he is a huge fan of rye and he still lives in Wisconsin. And so I was looking up like places that sell Jay Carver or, or like restaurants that have it. And it's definitely in Wisconsin. Like it's other places. I don't know if you can buy it in liquor stores, but there are Mm -hmm. definitely like supper clubs or whatever that, that have it for their drinks. So anyway, Does Wisconsin still have supper clubs? So fun fact, <laughs> my my family owned a supper club in Wisconsin and it is still there. And most of my family still works there. When my grandmother wanted to retire, nobody in the family really wanted. My aunt owned it like briefly, but decided mm-hmm. she liked being a teacher too much. So it was sold outside of the family. But we all still work there. Oh my like God. if I'm in town, the owner will call me and say, hey, can you do a shift? Like I, I basically grew up in this supper club. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That is precious. And now I want to go take a trip to your hometown and eat at this supper club. You need to. French fried turkey. They still do like French fried turkey. Oh, yeah. Oh, what yeah. Is, what does it mean for something to be French fried that isn't a basically, potato? Think about like fritter batter. around like really thinly sliced turkey breast and it's so juicy on the inside and frittery on the outside (laughs) and they still serve relish plates which a lot of places don't that's fun yeah anyway anyway i should tell them to get jay carver because like people go there for like the dinner and like the cocktail experience and this would be yeah oh it's so old school i love that that's awesome yeah (sighs) thanks jay carver we're super stoked Will you please tell me about an opera? Yeah. So as we already said, the opera requested tonight was Nabucco. And we've talked about Nabucco every time we've talked about Verdi, just because of Va Pensiero. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's about time that we actually talked about this. So Nabucco was composed by Verdi in 1841, and it was premiered at La Scala in Milan on March 9th of 1842. And the libretto actually ended up in Verdi's hands by chance. Oh, say more about that. So Verdi composed only two operas before this one. The first one was Oberto, which also premiered at La Scala, and which was fairly well received. And it led the impresario of La Scala to offer Verdi contracts for three more operas based on that first one. Dang. Right? Yeah. And then his second opera, King for a Day, which premiered at La Scala in 1840, was a complete flop. Oh. And this failure took a really heavy toll on Verdi because it came at the end of a very rough two years during which both Verdi's young children died, followed by Verdi's wife. That's right. And so after this opera flopped, he vowed to never compose again. Understandable. Yes. Then one day... He was walking down the street, and he happened to have a chance encounter with Bartolomeo Morelli, who was the impresario of La Scala, and Morelli happened to be carrying the libretto to Nabucco. What is an impresario? An impresario is is like the producer of an opera. Okay, okay. Like the Max Bialy stock of opera. Got it. Yeah, but in this case, he is associated with one specific opera house, so it's like... Mm. Uh, producer slash artistic, artistic director. director. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Morelli happened to be carrying the libretto to Nabucco when they ran into each other in the street, and he talked Verdi into taking it home and reading it through. And the next day, Verdi took the manuscript back to Morelli, and Morelli refused to take it back from him. He stuffed it into Verdi's bag, threw him out of his office, and locked the door. Aw, because he just wanted him to write something? He just wanted him to read it. That's all. Oh, oh, I see. Okay, well, he's, I mean, he wanted him to compose something for it because he liked the libretto and he obviously, like, saw something in Verdi. And that is just, that's so nice. Yeah, and also Verdi already owed them, like, two more operas based on the previous (laughs) contracts. So, like, dude, Uh, Also, (laughs) write me an opera, you dick. You failed once. (laughs) Just get over it and move on. (laughs) <laughs> so now this next part, 
may or may not be true. It could just be like a really romanticized hindsight by Verdi, who wrote about it 38 years later. But he took the score home, refused to open it, and he threw it onto the table with what he said was a violent gesture. And it happened to open to the page with the words of Va Pensiero. And he was kind of drawn in. And then he claims that later that night when he couldn't sleep, he read the entire libretto over three times. But a close friend of Verdi's gave a different story, which was apparently <laughs> given to her by Verdi himself. So he's told like multiple versions of this. Um, he said, uh, said he threw the libretto into a corner and didn't look at it for five months and carried on with his habit of reading, quote, bad novels, unquote. <laughs> and then one day he picked it up, read it, and he was drawn in by the final scene. And he read the final scene over several times and then sat down at the piano and began setting it to music. Either way, whichever version of the story Verdi feels like it is today. Obviously, he wrote the opera. <laughs> Obviously, he wrote this opera. Uh, but it sounds like the libretto must be pretty compelling. I mean, I guess. <laughs> I guess we're going to find out. I guess, yeah. Well, I I think as we've talked about before, and I'll talk about it in a little bit as well, Verdi was, was an Italian nationalist, and mm -hmm. Italy at that time was under um, Austrian rule. Mm -hmm. And the Italians very much wanted their country back. And so the story of Nabucco kind of aligns with the plight of the Italians at this time. So, of course, it drew Verdi in, especially as somebody who was political at his core. Yeah. He completed Nabucco in autumn of 1841, and it was the huge success that led to Verdi becoming a household name in all of Italy and beyond. And it's kind of fitting because this piece really launched his career and it ended it as well. Because as we said at Verdi's funeral, there was a chorus of 820 singers who sang Va Pensiero, conducted by Arturo Toscanini. And there were an estimated 300,000 people in attendance, and they sang along. That is so crazy. That is so crazy. I can't even, I can't even picture that many people <laughs> in the same place. I mean, pouring into the street. Wow. I wonder where it was held, if like they anticipated that kind of an audience, or if they were just literally just lining the streets. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. A little bit of both, Like, yeah. he's a national treasure. Maybe they planned for 100,000 and they got 300,000. <laughs> Can you imagine planning a funeral and planning... I'm sorry, for more than, like, 40 people, I feel like is an astonishing number. But if you're talking about national figures, I feel like even a couple hundred is a good number of people. It's insane. It's bonkers. It's yeah. It's bonkers. It's just kind of sweet that it bookends his life yeah yeah so what i'm gonna do today is i'm gonna set the stage for the story and then we can take a little break and mix us some more cocktails and then we'll come back and i'll tell you about the whole plot <laughs> that sounds great i'm excited on my next beverage i'm just gonna do aquavit over ice because mm. i want to get like an unadulterated taste of this aquavit and i'm excited i'm excited to hear about it to set the scene here nabucco was actually premiered under the title Nabu uh, Nabucco Dinosaur. Nabucco Dinosaur. <laughs> Tell me more about that. How did I know you would jump on Because that? I go for the low-hanging fruit, Tina. It's <laughs> literally my job on this podcast. Well, Nabucco Dinosaur is actually the <laughs> Italian name for Nebuchadnezzar II. Oh. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now we've shortened it to Nabucco. Which is okay. easier to say than Nabucodonosor. <laughs> anyway, um, so the events in this opera happen on a severely pared down timeline, as they tend to, but this is like a hundred years pared down into like a couple of days. Oh. According to the Old Testament of the Bible and to historical records from that time, which are few and far between, considering the plot of this opera is happening sometime around maybe 590 B.C., Hmm. The title role of Nabucco is actually a composite of three different people. We have Nebuchadnezzar II, the Babylonian king, who took over Jerusalem in 597 BC. We have the story of uh, Nabonidus, which comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he was the fifth king to rule after Nebuchadnezzar II. Okay. And then we have Cyrus the Great, the man who finally freed the Jewish people from Babylonian rule 
after his conquest of Babylon in 539 BC. So basically all the deeds of these three men are tied up into a neat little package for the sake of the story, and we call it Nabucco. Okay, seems reasonable. So what you need to know is that the Hebrews or the Israelites, of course, worship the God of Israel, and the Babylonians worship a, a later generation Mesopotamian God whom they address as Bel, which is their way of calling him Lord. And just a few other things before we take a break. As I said, the audience loved this piece because they really identified with the Israelites who were under control of the Babylonians, mm-hmm. which parallels Italy being under control of Austria. Mm-hmm. But the critics were kind of lukewarm about it. And there was one critic in particular, Otto Nikolai, who absolutely hated it, thinking it was just overly emotional and melodramatic and Italian. And he was very outspoken about his hate of this opera once he heard it was a hit, saying, Verdi's operas are really horrible. He scores like a fool. Technically, he's not even professional. And he must have the heart of a donkey. And in my view, he is a pitiful, despicable composer. Nabucco is nothing but rage, invective, bloodshed, and murder. Jeez. Well, and it sounds like he's got an issue with the librettist more than he's got... Well, it sounds like he's got issues with both, but God. Well, it turns out Otto Nikolai was the composer the libretto to Nabucco was originally offered to, (gasps) and he refused it, and I'm sure he was kicking himself (laughs) for that. But also, like, who the hell is Otto Nikolai? Have you ever heard of him before? Nope. Well, no, we I go. have not. There we go. No, I have not. Until tonight, when we talked about him disparagingly because he was being a dick. There we have it. It's about, it's all about how you leave your legacy, people. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think your legacy is going to be after we sing Verdi's Requiem for your funeral? Oh, man. I mean, after we sing Verdi's Requiem for my funeral? I'm counting myself in. I'm assuming that I will be singing from above or or elsewhere (laughs) on a separate plane of existence sure how are people going to remember you after you die for which you have already requested Verdi's Requiem I hope I am remembered as lightly eccentric and very warm and also with a sharp wit Hmm. I hope that that is how I am remembered that's how I think of you now well, okay, so I just got to keep it up. I think people will remember, will remember me as being really loud, as reading way too many books, and as being slightly irreverent. Yeah, I mean, I don't consider you loud, though. Oh, my God, I'm so loud. <laughs> like, as a woman, I have been told so many times, like, you sound angry, you need to tone it down. Like, my <laughs> well, entire that's bullshit, life. and we know that. That's bullshit, and we know that. I have experienced you in the professional capacity as well as now in this capacity, and I have yet to ever consider that you are a loud person. Oh, good. (laughs) I am often told to tone it down. (laughs) Well, those people sound lame, Tina. (laughs) But also, I just like sing really loud for a living, so that kind of helps. Yeah, I like that about you, though. Do you need another drink? Yeah, I do. I do. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Jay Carver Distillery. J. Carver Distillery is located in the farming heart of Carver County, Minnesota. They explore and celebrate the bounty of Minnesota grains, fruits, and botanicals as they forge community relationships with farmers and barrel coopers from right down the road. They unapologetically challenge norms and champion new practices to achieve superior spirits. Their local award-winning farm-to-bottle spirits are produced entirely on-site in their Waconia facility using sustainable practices. Head over to jcarverdistillery.com to learn more. All right, teach me. Teach you? Teach me. About Nabucco? Yes. Okay. Nabucco the dinosaur. Nabucco the dinosaur opens in the Jewish temple of Solomon. And the people there are restless because the Babylonian army is drawing closer to the city of Jerusalem. And Zechariah, the high priest, urges people to keep faith in God who will see them through their ordeal. Zechariah boosts their spirits by showing them that he has a hostage, Benina, the oh. younger daughter of Nabucco, king oh. of Babylon. Oh, 
I know my spirits are often lifted when someone shows me they're hostage. What? <laughs> but also, like, trust in God, he'll help us. But also, we have a hostage. Oh. But okay. they're, they're hoping that they're going to be able to use her to negotiate peace. Oh, I'm sorry. They're hoping that they're going to be able to use her. I'm shocked. <laughs> ah, God. Yeah, no matter how you spin it, that doesn't sound very yeah, good, does there's it? No, there's no good way to slice this. Like, this is shitty behavior. But look, we're, we're rooting for these people. Therefore, it's okay that they have a hostage. Oh, God. As the people leave to defend their temple, Fenina is given to the care of an Israelite named Ismaele, which I assume is just Ishmael. Ishmael, yeah. He is the nephew of the king of Jerusalem. Okay, so hang on. I got to make sure I have this right because I haven't had liquor <laughs> in a month. <laughs> and now and now I've had two and a half shots of Akavit and I'm like, woo. Okay, so this is the Temple of Solomon. The Israelites are in there freaking out because the Babylonian army is advancing on them. Correct. But they've got the Babylonian king's daughter. Younger daughter. Younger daughter. And that's good. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and also, what was the last thing you said? Ishmael something? Yeah, they, they're like going out to defend their temple and they give her to the care of Ishmael. And he is who now? He is the nephew of the king of Jerusalem. Okay. And it turns out... That Fenina and Ismaele are actually lovers. Oh, they already were? Yeah, they already were. And they spend this time that they have alone to reminisce about a time when they were in this situation before, only their situations were reversed because Ismaele, who was the nephew of the king of Jerusalem, was being held captive by the Babylonians. And Fenina helped him escape. And that's when they fell in love. Bow, 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 bow. Nothing says love like escaping captivity, am I right? <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Like, trauma bonds are pretty powerful, but also cute. Can I quote you on that? Uh, no, because that wasn't, like, a full sentence. <laughs> Thanks, J. Carver Distillery. My mental faculties are swiftly leaving. <laughs> yes, well, I'll get through this quickly then. Nabucco's elder daughter, Abigaile. Abigail. Abigail. <laughs> Abigail. Is this is this the Italianization of these? Yep. The Italianization of these biblical names is really gonna give my rhine tongue a spin tonight. Abigail. Abigail. That's just excessive. Come on. I'm gonna do my best to pronounce her name correctly all night, but no promises here. <laughs> so Abigail infiltrates the temple with some Babylonian soldiers, and she sees Ismaele and Fenina together, and she's enraged because see, she's also in love with Ismaele. And this is Fenina's older sister, I assume. Yes. She gives the man an ultimatum. If he swears to love her instead, she will convince Nabucco to spare the Israelites. And if he refuses, she's going to brand her sister as a traitor. Because that's how affection works. You just turn it on and off like a light switch and point it in any direction you need to. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it can be threatened. Yeah, it can be threatened. And it totally isn't going to feel cheap and like gross if you force it out of somebody. It'll totally feel really good. I do want to know like what her... Like, how how does she think this will end? Like, he's going to say, yes, I will love you instead to save the person that I really love and, like, all these people. And then, like, what? I mean, in this time period, theoretically, they could also, like, she could be his other wife. Is that how that works? Well, I I mean, no. But, <laughs> but like, well, no, I mean, like, I'm thinking of the story of Jacob from the Old Testament, and he was in love with Leah. Rachel? One of the two. One of the two sisters he was in love with. And he wanted to marry her, and the father was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And he got married, and he pulls the veil up, and turns out it's not it's not the one he wanted. You look surprised if you never heard this story. Look, I went to Catholic school, but you say that, it, like, you, you pretend like I paid attention. <laughs> I did not. I mean, I went to Catholic school. <laughs> yeah, well... I obviously paid less attention than you did. Okay, the reason I know this story is because as a kid, I was like, 
ooh, I love Donny Osmond and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and so I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole of learning about the biblical backstory of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. For the record, I do love Donny Osmond in that. Close every door. Hello. My heart breaks every time. I It, it is my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, for sure. Don't get me started on... Phantom of the Opera. Oh, God. Okay, moving first on. Of moving all, on. <laughs> first of all, it's not an opera. It is not an opera. If I do one more goddamn Google search for opera memes when I'm trying to run the social media page, and I just get page after page after page of very unfunny Phantom of the Opera memes, I swear to God, Tina, I swear to God, I'm going to quit running our social. But the thing is, you said, don't get you started. And then I started myself. And then you started, and, like, I couldn't stop you, mainly because, like, you just kept going, but also because I kind of didn't want to. I mean, I I knew this would happen. <laughs> I knew what I was setting up. Anyway, you're telling the story it's comedy. of Jacob and the wife that he didn't want. He wanted the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so oh God, I can't. I'm, I'm pissed at myself. I think it's Leah was the one he did not want. And Rachel is the one that he wanted. Yes, I believe that's correct. So I think it was like the big reveal happened at the wedding. Like, ha you married the other one. <laughs> and the I know, so shitty. And then the dad of the two daughters was like, well, you can marry Rachel if you work for me for five years. So he just becomes an indentured servant to this dad for five years so that he can marry Rachel. Boo. I'm trying to, like, picture my dad doing this because my younger sister looks a lot like me, but shorter and also cuter. So you're Leah. You're Leah in this story. <laughs> but if John and I were getting married and then John lifted the veil and it was Hannah. <laughs> or if you found out after all this time that he was in it for Hannah, <laughs> you were the no, consolation No, I guys. hate this story. Can I tell you about Nabucco instead? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So when we left off, Abagayule is like, hey, love me or else. And Ismaile refuses to love her. And then Abagayule gets pissed. And if you're not getting the picture yet, she basically spends the entire opera fuming about one thing or another because she sucks. Mm. <laughs> and then Nabucco and his soldiers arrive at the tempo, temple and they're preparing to destroy it. But Zachariah threatens to kill Fenina, and that leads to a stalemate. Okay. Ismaele, who is distressed by Fenina's situation, saves her from his own people and returns her to her father, which breaks the stalemate and allows Nabucco's men to destroy the Temple of Solomon. And Ismaele is branded as a traitor by Zachariah and his people. Okay. Yeah. This is uh, complicated. Mm-hmm. And high stakes, like super high stakes. Yeah. I feel like the stakes do not get this high in a lot of the operas that we talk about. Or or they do and they just don't have like the structure to hold them up. You know what I sure. mean? Yeah. I feel like Ernani had these stakes. <laughs> Thanks, Bible. <laughs> Thanks, Old Testament, for doing the legwork for the stakes, story. Stakes like... 90 years of history compressed into like two days of story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty good way to, to amplify the, just really up the tension. If you make everything happen super fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Back in Babylon, Nabucco appoints Fenina, his regent while he leaves to resume his campaign against the Israelites. And Abigail is like, what gives? I'm the older sister. Why did he leave that bitch in charge? And then Abigail finds a Abigail. Oh my god. She finds a document which confirms that she is not actually the biological daughter of Nabucco. She was born to slaves and then adopted by Nabucco as an infant. And of course she's pissed. Oh, the Abigail was? Yes. Oh. So that's why Fenina is the favored daughter. Is she about to go all Moses on this bitch? run away into the desert and get married and come back with, like, divine powers of plaguing. You know, things would be a lot less complicated if she just did that, but that is not what happens. <laughs> Go on. So the high priest of Bel, remember, who is the god of the Babylonians at this point, yep. he enters and tells Abigail, hey, your sister has just released all of the captive Israelites in your father's absence. And so, of course, he's pissed. And he wants Abigail to take power instead. 
Oh my god. <laughs> so they decide that the best way to proceed is to spread the rumor that Nabucco has been killed in combat. And when the rumor reaches court, Abigaile and the high priest enter the court and order Fenina to relinquish the crown. After all, she has been aiding the enemy. And of course, the people are in favor of Abigaile. Why are the people in favor of her? Because she's the older sister and she's like the more powerful personality. And also Fenina released all the enemy. Yeah. And then Nabucco suddenly returns, forcing his way through the crowd to take back his crown from Abigaile, and he declares himself not only Babylon's rightful king, but also he declares himself God himself. Oh, (laughs) that always works out really good. And Zachariah denounces him for blasphemy, and Nabucco then orders the execution of all of the Israelites. Oh, because that's never happened before in human history. Wow, Jesus. It's very easy as a person of not Jewish heritage and someone who doesn't have any family members who lived through the Holocaust or has any like direct ties to that to not fully realize the ancestral trauma impact of being frequently hunted by the local government, like hunted for extermination. It's not even the local government. It's the government who's taken over. The invading government. The invading yeah. Government. But, but just, but just like the, whoever's in power, literally calling for the extermination mm-hmm. of the Jews is a repeating theme in history. And like, I knew that I knew that intellectually, but I guess I only had the two examples I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. But man, it pops up, doesn't it? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. It's pretty fucked. It is pretty fucked. But I will point out that the Jewish people are actually the protagonists in this opera. Oh, for sure. So we're actually rooting for them. And that matters. That super matters, especially in a time when anti-Semitism is rampant in Europe. And we are writing a pro-Jewish story here. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. That's really interesting. Verdi is essentially asking the Italian people to feel to identify with the plight of the Hebrew people. And, you know, that's that's a good thing. I wish I knew more about this librettist. Mm, That's a really good question. I wish I had done research on that. (laughs) I wish I would have realized I would have done a 60 second bio on the librettist. You know what? In the future, when we have repeat composer, I should ask you to do that. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Or like we should definitely do that in the future. If there's a composer who only ever wrote one opera, I should just ask you to research the librettist instead. So when we left off, Nabucco has ordered the execution of the Israelites. And he's God now. That's cool. Congrats on your promotion. (laughs) (laughs) When you pop onto LinkedIn, Nabucco was promoted to God. (laughs) Say congrats. Send him a DM. But then Fenina reveals to her father that while she was their captive, she converted to Judaism. So he has essentially just ordered her execution as well. Oopies. And so Nabucco, pissed, again says, well, you can't do that because I am God himself. And then there is a sudden clap of thunder and the crown is thrown from his head and he is instantly rendered insane. Oh, like he is made insane by God. Yeah, there's like divine intervention here. Like, you asshole, you can't say that. Let me show you who's God. When you said that the the crown flies off of his head the very first image that i had was the stagehand <laughs> in the wings and the crown is tied to like fishing wire and they just get to yank it <laughs> there were several times when i read this libretto and i was like how do they make this happen that's how that's how they do it Especially man. back in 1841 <laughs> yep although what did they have for fishing line just a really thin piece of string yeah that's how i would do it on a budget for sure i don't know how like major opera houses do it but definitely someone dressed in all black sitting in the wings waiting for their big moment where the crown that is tied <laughs> to some fishing wire needs to get yanked off of somebody's head <laughs> Stage magic. <laughs> when the crown falls, as you can imagine, Abigail seizes it and asserts her authority as the new queen of Babylon. And as queen, 
she intends to execute the Israelites. But little does she know her crown is tied to a piece of fishing wire and can be yanked from her head at any moment. (laughs) That's foreshadowing. You're going to tell people the ending. (laughs) The high priest of Baal brings her a death warrant for the execution of the Israelites. And though she technically doesn't need his consent, she tricks Nabucco into signing it anyways. Okay. Just to be a bitch. I just really think it's kind of ridiculous and hilarious that she needed like a warrant <laughs> to kill the entirety of the Jewish population of this area. Like who like what notary <laughs> drafted that up? The high priest of Baal, thank you. I mean, I get it, but it's ridiculous. Nabucco, <laughs> not wanting Fenina to go to her death, tries to denounce Abigail's right to the throne by declaring Isn't he insane? He is, but he still like loves his younger daughter and doesn't want her to die. He's got a little bit left up there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he tries to denounce Abigaila by declaring that she's not truly his daughter. And he's like, I got documents that prove that to be true. And he tries to find them, but he can't. At which point, Abigaila... These Babylonians are really big on their, like, official documentation. <laughs> yeah. But let me tell you this next plot point. Abigaila whips out those documents and says, yeah, guess what? I already fucking know that. And then she rips them up to shreds in front of him. Yeah, but... <laughs> It would have been a lot more effective if she had just burned them in secret. Because <laughs> now she definitely gave away that he's telling the truth. <laughs> Unless, is there nobody else there? Oh, only to only him. Only to him. Well, so it's more effective to be like, in your face, fake dad. Crazy dad. <laughs> Crazy fake dad. <laughs> but let me just... Let me just point this out because you've already kind of touched on it and it drives me fucking nuts. This is incredibly anachronistic. Why? Because... We're in roughly like 597 BC. There's no paper here. There's no paper. (laughs) There's like stone tablets. Paper doesn't exist. Do they they even have like written language back then? Yes. I mean, they must. Yes. And I did research on this because I knew you would ask. And I I know that, Uh, I mean, Abigail is a woman but can read because she is of the royal The daughter of a king. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. She can read stone tablets. And then tear them up. I mean, they would have had, they would have had like papyrus scrolls. Nope. Yeah. They, in Babylon at this time, it is stone tablet. I feel like that would be more fun to watch if she had to like karate smash some stone tablets. Yeah, but also like pull them out of her robes. She's got them strapped to her inner thighs and she's been walking really funny for the last several scenes and nobody knows why. (laughs) delightful it bothers the shit out of me good times good times all right back to back to karate chopping stone tablets in front of your dad yeah. as a big fuck you yeah mm-hmm. so nabuko realizes that he's powerless against this baby that he adopted who is now a ridiculously angry wrathful woman he's like god what a mistake <laughs> <laughs> but also my question is like because he knows that she's not his biological daughter and he now has a biological daughter who he obviously treats better is Abigail just like, why, why doesn't he love me? Like what is wrong here? Oh, a hundred percent. hundred percent. Absolutely. So of course, Nabucco pleads for Fenina's life and Abigail is completely unmoved and orders him to leave. And then the next scene is where we get the famous Va Pensiero. Okay. The Israelites, being captive, are doing forced labor, and they take a break from their forced labor, and they're sitting by the river Euphrates, and they sing about their homeland and how they long to return. And just some of the lyrics from this, because, like, it's it's going to make me cry. This is going to be, like, the third time I have cried about this piece on this podcast. Oh, man. But the words are, go thoughts on golden wings, go settle upon the slopes and hills where warm and soft and fragrant are the breezes of our sweet native land, the great banks of Jordan, the towers of Zion. And here's the line that always gets me. Oh, my country, so beautiful and lost. Ah, it gets me every time. It's when they come back into unison at that point Um, and it just hits you. It just like it's a dart right in your heart. It's so good. Anyway, mm. the entire scene is them singing Va Pensiero, and it gets an encore like every fucking time because why wouldn't it? And then Zachariah implores them to once more 
have faith in their God because God will save them and destroy Babylon. He can just feel it. Are you going to cry too? Are you crying right now? I'm definitely, I'm definitely moved. I mean, this is just, it's, it's more of what I was saying earlier. Like I didn't realize how little context I had for why the Jewish people, why there's this theme of like perpetual persecution that's like an accepted and acceptable narrative. I just can't believe how little context I had. I mean, it, it was substantial. It was definitely enough for me to be like, yep, you can have that. Absolutely. But it means it, it's so much more than just something that happened in the 40s. It's so much more than that. It's th- hundreds of years because like thousands, what, what you said that really just kind of like sucker punched me. And what you said that grabbed me was they're being made to do forced labor. They're enslaved. And they're awaiting their deaths and doing forced labor. And they're awaiting their deaths and doing forced labor. And I was like, oh, so like concentration camps. And this this is, of course, not to say that there are not other groups of people who have been similarly persecuted throughout history. Of course, of course, absolutely. But it really is just kind of amazing to me how how little we all know, you know, like there's that saying of like, you don't know what somebody's going through. So like treat them with kindness. But I think also it's, it, it begs to be said, like you don't know what a culture has or or a group of people have experienced and what ancestral trauma they carry with them, an entire community of people and what shaped them can go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and trauma is literally handed down for anybody who's listening and who doesn't know what the fuck I'm talking about when I say that ancestral trauma is literally handed down. There is literal anatomical evidence of physical changes to the brain of people who, for example, like their parents or grandparents grew up in abject poverty or their parents or grandparents uh, experienced um, high levels of physical abuse and punishment or high levels of emotional abuse or people who grew up in refugee situations or people whose ancestors underwent huge natural disasters, things like that. There is literally changes to the brain that get handed down and entire generations and multiple generations are affected by the trauma that happened before they even knew about it, before before they even have a relative that they had ever met. It's so important. It's so important to know your own history and to address your trauma. And also it's really fucking important to like believe people when they say that this is what, this is what has been affecting me. This is, this is what my story is, or this is what the story of my people is. Ugh, Tina. I know. I know. Man, the first, first, it's the first time I've been having alcohol in a minute, and now you're telling me the story, and I'm just going to be a hot mess in about ten minutes. Yeah. Well, let me let me point out the flip side of that, which is sectarian violence, which is hating people just because you hate them, and that's the way things are. And it led to the Jew. I mean, it still leads to the Jewish people being persecuted. I mean, throughout history. We hate them because of their religion, because it's against ours, or we hate them just by virtue of them being who they are and we being who we are. You know, it's like and then Romeo find and find all sorts of yeah, and find all sorts of reasons. Like, oh, it's because they take all the money or Yeah. Oh, because they have space lasers, you know, space lasers to start wildfire. You didn't hear about this? I am making a face at you right now. Like, no, what? What? Oh my goodness. What is the name of this person who is like a government official? Hang on. Hold, please. All right. This is from Forbes, which is arguably a very nonpartisan source. So before anybody freaks out on me. It's from fucking Forbes. Uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor. Did Representative Marjorie Taylor Green blame a space laser for wildfires? Here's the response. 
The trending of Jewish space laser apparently was ignited by social media posts from the first-term representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia. Her Facebook post was actually from 2018, but re-emerged recently, sort of like a piece of something floating back to the water surface in a toilet bowl. (laughs) In her post, Taylor Greene suggested that the 2018 California wildfires may not have been due to climate change, leaving vegetation drier and more combustible. No, instead she advanced the theory that, drumroll please, some kind of space laser had lit things on fire. Yes, you heard that correctly. A space laser. It's called the fucking sun, but okay, go on. (laughs) Okay. So why does the trending phrase have the word Jewish in front of it? Well, Taylor Greene's post suggested that the Rothschild banking firm is behind a supposed corporate cabal that engineered this whole space laser plot. Of course. The old Rothschild family explanation again. (laughs) Yeah, so she's she's like made other Islamophobic and anti-Semitic comments in history, and the space laser theory is quote the latest in a long line of conspiracies about the Rothschild family, and those conspiracies are always at root anti-Semitic. Since the 19th century, people have used claims that this one particular wealthy family controls the world to cast aspersions on Jews in general. So yeah, fucking hate that so much. I know, right? So much. I mean, it just goes to show you that it's been, what, 2,500 years since the apparent plot of this opera? And things have not fucking changed. We just, we hate people because we hate them, and then we create reasons to hate them. Mm-hmm. And it's outlandish. I hate it so much. So we're back at Babylon. And Nabucco sees his daughter being led off to her execution. And he decides, as a last resort, to pray to the God of the Israelites, saying... Oh, okay, sorry, the God of the Israelites. I was like, aren't you God? <laughs> a different God, got it. This is him humbling himself. Aww. And saying that he will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and can con- convert to Judaism himself, if God will forgive him. And his prayers are instantly answered, and his madness is lifted. And Nabucco hurries off to save his daughter's life, and he gets to the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, where the executions are about to take place. And he gets there just in time. And he proclaims his conversion, denounces Bel, and orders the destruction of the idol to Bel, and miraculously, it instantly topples over and shatters. And everyone is awed by Nabucco's divine favor. And Zechariah asserts that he is truly a servant of God. And Nabucco frees the Israelites. And then Abigail is carried in by soldiers because she's poisoned herself and she is dying. Because she knows she's going to be punished for her deeds. And the opera ends with her begging for her sister's forgiveness and for God's mercy. And then she dies. The end. Wow. So one of the things that I struggle with. Okay. So, so full disclosure, I was raised Catholic. I then kind of shifted to more just general, broad, evangelical Christianity kind of thing. And then when I went to college, I started just learning a lot about how religions are formed, specifically the Christian and Catholic religions. I mean, a lot of things had started to kind of turn me into more of an agnostic. Like I have a deep appreciation for spirituality and spiritual practices. And I have a, like a respect for many, many, many world religions insofar as they are in their purest form. But humans have this way of imposing such human-like qualities onto their deities that just grinds my fucking gears. Like he swore to convert and suddenly his wishes were granted and his madness was lifted. Like God is not petty. God is all knowing. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is the most pure and just idea in existence. And yet he wants you to pick a team. And that, that is something that bothers me about, I mean, this is obviously not Christianity. It's Judaism, right? So Christ isn't a thing for another 500 years. And of course, the Jewish people do not accept Jesus as their Messiah or whatever that is. Um, 
I don't really know because I was raised Catholic as well. And I was raised Catholic by somebody who used Catholicism to perpetuate her own bad deeds and say, well, I pray to God every week and therefore I'm a better Mm. person than you. And I ask for forgiveness for all the bad things that I do. And then I turn around and do them again. Exactly. And that really soured me to it. And it Mm -hmm. made me realize that just because one converts to a religion does not mean that one follows the ideals of that religion. Yeah. And I would actually argue that as a, I I would call myself a secular humanist. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I feel like I do all of the things that the Christian religion preaches without having to convert to a religion and that's that's another thing like it's it's all over history like if you if you read if you've ever read any of the arthurian legend Mm. this predates christianity but a lot of the people who are writing it down for the first time because they're literate enough to write it down are like monks right christian monks and so you start seeing a whole bunch of christianity kind of permeating it beowulf is the same way the legend of beowulf you see oh really oh yeah you see a whole bunch of christianity like sneaking its way into it huh and it just like puts it in there at the last minute sometimes like and then they asked god for forgiveness and everything was good so it's such a yeah. convenient way to tie up a story yes a cute little bow and something that really hit hit the nail on the head for me was a few years ago I was asked to sing for a funeral it was a funeral for somebody I didn't know but obviously the person who was officiating the funeral did not know her either and was like such and such a person I never met her But if she were here right now, she would tell you to fear God and to read the Bible and to go to church. And I'm like, would she tell you that? Would she really tell you that? And so I feel like a lot of these stories are like, and then we converted and everything was good. Oh, that person used a funeral as an opportunity to evangelize? Barf. Yep. What? No. And it's not the first time I have heard it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so throwing back to Amanda wants to have Verdi's Requiem sung at her funeral. Do not use my funeral as a platform for advancing any specific religion. <laughs> it just makes me so sad. And maybe it's the Akavit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but it just makes, you know, there's a lot of this right now. And it, it's obviously, you know, in some ways it's comforting to think, oh, well... Humans have constantly struggled with property ownership and kingdoms and wealth and poverty and my religion over yours. Yeah. And nationalism and racism and sexism. Like this is just all not new. So like everybody, it's going to be okay. But at the same time, how the fuck have we not and like obviously we've advanced somewhat like considerably yes we've advanced Mm -hmm. but my goodness there is still just rampant discrimination classism sexism racism like everybody listening to this podcast if your thought is well not me okay i get that i do but have you examined the systems that you benefit from I have so many opinions. I know. I do too. <laughs> and I can't articulate them well because now I've had almost four <laughs> shots of Akavit. I know. I know. I know. I guess I guess the best thing we can do, because you and I could definitely go off on this forever, and I guess the best thing we can huh. do as, is um, re-examine this from the best possible light. We are meant to identify with the Israelites in this opera. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let's say that they are on the side of good. Which, I mean, is anybody inherently good or evil? I don't know. I mean, we like to play it that way, but I don't know. So let's just assume that they are on the side of goodness. Okay. Goodness prevails. Yep. And goodness not only prevails, well, they they don't prevail by force. Yeah, I was going to say they they prevail and it's not like, yeah, the goodness prevails through goodness. Yeah, that is definitely a bright spot for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can I can dig that. Okay. And I think, I mean, looking at this as an Italian in 1841 and identifying with this plight and being given hope. I mean, it says that in the original 
production, it wasn't actually Bob Pensiero that they gave a standing ovation for and called for an encore for. First of all, because it would have been a little too on the nose and the Austrians would have been like, something Mm. is up here. This could lead to revolution. (laughs) But it was actually when Nabucco prays to the God of the Israelites. When he, when he, he proselytizes himself. Yes. Or is it? No, not proselytizes. um, Prostrates. Thank you. Alcohol. Yes. And so it is like saying the person, it's seeing the good in the person against you and them realizing that you are a human and that you are correct and that they cannot persecute you because you are a fellow human and you believe the same things. And they asked for an encore for that, apparently, on opening night. Yeah, that is heartening, though, to think about that in all of these stories throughout history, there has been someone fighting for the good, you know, fighting for good. And it's like, to your point, is anyone inherently good? Absolutely not. Is anyone inherently bad? Nope. (laughs) I would argue that everybody is inherently good with traits that go against the, the good of others and whether or not you are actively choosing to do that because it antagonizes others. Like, I think like we are, I mean, we're all out for ourselves. We're all for our own self-interest. I will be honest. On a daily basis, I do the things that are good for me. It's evolution. Are the things that are good for me bad for other people? I don't necessarily know all the time because I don't always examine it. Like, do I do I order too many things from Amazon? Oh yes, I fucking do. Is that bad for other people? Yes, it is. Yeah. Am I somebody else's enemy because of this? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do I feel it as a bad thing for myself? Not unless I really examine how it affects other people who have no relation to me. Do you know what I'm saying? I so I don't think oh, that totally. people are, are in, I, I do believe that people are inherently good. And I do think that your own self-interest is inherently good, but also being able to, I guess, to put it uh, in a cliche way, to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes or to walk a mile sure. in everybody else's shoes is necessary. Yeah. And it's always impossible to walk a mile in every single person's shoes and you can only do the best that you can with the information that you have. And then when you get better information, you do better. Yeah. Well, and I think that you said the phrase rampant capitalism a while ago. And I think that that word rampant is really important because there is no economic system that's like inherently bad. It's just that at this point in history, post-industrial revolution, we have just vast amounts of wealth, vast amounts of wealth, vast amounts of waste and production of goods and food and transportation and the exploitation of oil and land. And I mean, the, the scale of humans on earth has just exploded over the last couple hundred years. I really, oh man, it eats me up some days where I'm just like, I need to take my family and go live in the woods because if I can just grow my own food and make my own clothes and just have eggs from chickens and get a cow for milk, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And I won't have an environmental impact that will enslave anyone or, or contribute to the enslavement of, of people in different countries. I mean, I, we, we live on stolen land, so I will inherently have occupied land that is stolen, but I won't be actively like contributing to the powers that oppress other people if I can just be self-sustaining entirely. But that's a, a really big ask. Mm-hmm. And also... It becomes so cripplingly, I think, in in defense of everybody out there who just can't deal with the sheer volume of oppression that props up our existences, particularly as moderately, not wealthy, but like (laughs) first world, like we're fine. Yeah. (laughs) We're fucking fine. It is absolutely overwhelming to consider the scope of our participation in oppressive systems. Yeah. I mean, if I just want to like eat a piece of chocolate, what child labor has, I mean, what, what yep. kid is enslaved to make that chocolate happen for me? Yep. Right. Yep. 
This has been a dark episode. It really, Tina. really has. It really has. It really, really. Bill has. at J Carver Distillery. Do you know what you were asking of us? Did you know? Also, did you did you know what kind of potty mouth opera podcast you were getting yourself into when yeah. you agreed? Because we yeah. swear a lot. It's Amanda's fault, really. But it's you know I I always tell people. Hey, this is the podcast, and here's where you can find us. And like, I don't know. I don't know if he listened before he said yes. Here's the thing. I've mentioned this so many times. I am not a fan of light. I am not a fan of something that is entertainment purely for entertainment's sake, that doesn't move you in some way or lead you to think about something in a different way, like something that doesn't give you perspective, right? Yeah. And yeah. what have we talked about on this episode, if not absolutely a shit ton of perspective? And honestly. I I don't know how anybody could go to watch Nabucco and not be moved by yeah. the plight of the people. I don't know mm-hmm. necessarily if it will make everybody examine themselves in the process, but it's certainly done that for me talking about it with you, like without having a production to watch in front of it, without having like mm-hmm. the sheen of sets and costumes. The spectacle and the fishing wire yanking the crown off of the head of Nabucco. So going back to, you know, 1841, when Verdi is distraught after losing his two children and then his wife and then having a career failure, having heard the plot of Nabucco, I can definitely understand why he would be moved by it and feel the need to, to set it to music. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I understand like, you know, being in the in the throes of despair and wanting to tell people like this is what despair feels like oh, for through sure. something like Vapensero, because even within that despair there is a little bit of hope there and that hope, as small as it is, can be the most beautiful thing in the world. Oh yeah. For sure. Well, and it also just kind of demonstrates how creating art is really therapeutic. It's so therapeutic. It's such a way. I mean, even even things that aren't so quite on the nose, you you identify like you find ways to see yourself in the art that you're creating. And it's so essential. And not just the art that you're creating, but the art that you're consuming, the stuff that really moves you. It's because you see something of yourself or your life or something that has traumatized you or something that has given you pause in the past it's so crucial to human existence, man. I am just missing live theater so hard. Ah, I want to leave my house and do shows. And with that, thanks everyone for listening. If you have an idea for an opera that you would like us to talk about on the show, you can send that opera to us via email at operaplothappyhour at gmail.com. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Absolutely. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. While you're there, please rate and review us because it helps other people find the show. It helps make us feel good about ourselves. It's just, I mean, it's just a great thing to do all around, guys. So next week on this podcast... I am going to make sure that I select the correct microphone input before we record so I am not recording on four-year-old Apple earbuds that I only use. <laughs> Sorry, for everybody. Podcast. It's hard to record a podcast, <laughs> especially when you're drinking. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say we need to rethink the format, but uh, no. I'm gonna... <laughs> We're going to keep drinking when we do this podcast. <laughs> Um, So next week, in addition to making sure I have the correct microphone input, we have a special Valentine's Day treat for y'all. I'm so excited, guys. I am too. Should we tell them what it is? I guess we we should tell them, guys, 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 guys. We're gonna put our husbands on the podcast with us. (laughs) We're gonna bring our Valentines on for your Valentines. I have a quote from the inestimable Jesse Norman. The question was, did the critics infuriate you through your career? And she said, well, they they might write it, but darling, I don't read it. I don't need it. I know whether or not I've done on stage what I intended to do that night. So whatever I'm able to do, I'm giving all of that I'm able to do on that particular night. 
And if it doesn't suit somebody who is sitting there not having paid for their ticket and they find it not to their liking, what does it matter? Who are they? They're not my friends. They're not from my family. They're not people who work with me or coach me and have been in any way influential in my life. So why should it matter what that person says? Raise my glass to Fuck that. Fuck yes, Jesse Norman. Rip in peace, Jesse Norman. Rip in peace.